This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I do think energy is underemphasized in the research as well. Because, you know, time, yes, we all have time. But if you're a mother of two or three and you're working full time in a in a really physically or mentally exhausting job, you don't really want to come home and work up for an hour. You know, Absolutely. people you have a lot of, you know, personal trainers, if I may say, or health coaches saying we all have the same 24 hours in a day. No, we do not. <laughs> Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, I am super excited to have an incredible nutrition expert on our podcast today. Maurice Breckley is a registered nutritionist, researcher, and academic specializing in sustainable weight loss. She's currently in the final month of her PhD, which focused on investigating behavioral determinants that increase the likelihood of achieving long-term weight loss outcomes with her own patient cohort. She also runs a private weight loss practice in London and teaches Master of Science in Obesity and Weight Management to experienced healthcare professionals at the University of South Wales. Prior to this, she spent over a decade working as a registered nutritionist for the NHS and in private practice with a particular focus on sustainable weight loss and overall health improvements. Today, we discuss a lot of important aspects of obesity, weight loss, weight management, and how important a multidisciplinary, empathetic, and compassionate approach is for success. We spend this episode talking about Marie's latest research, which is really thought-provoking. The research question she was interested in was, what does the experience of trying to achieve sustainable weight loss entail after completing a one-year weight loss program followed by one year of predominantly self-directed support? Whereas so many studies in medicine, nutrition, and health focus on objective outcomes such as measurable biomarkers or biometrics like weight, Marie's study focused on the patient's subjective experience, which is so important. This study provides valuable insights into the complexities entailed in the experience of trying to achieve significant sustainable weight loss. We discuss how obesity is a complex disease that entails a nuanced and respectful discussion centering around patient preferences and goals. We discuss how Marie's research found that personalized, agile treatment approaches taking into account individual circumstances and requirements have the potential to enhance long-term treatment outcomes for patients. 
and how continuously changing circumstances and requirements due to the transience of life highlight the importance of receiving ongoing support to facilitate optimal long-term outcomes. We discuss how it's not always the right time to lose weight, depending on certain life circumstances and dynamic variables, and healthcare professionals should be empathetic and compassionate in their approach with all patients. We discuss how Marie's research evaluated how family, social commitments, food environment, time and structure, and several other variables impacted weight loss and weight maintenance during the study. And most importantly, we discuss at length how there is no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to weight loss and health. Hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hi, everyone. We are here today with the incredible Marie Spreckley, and I am so excited and honored to have her on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here today, Marie. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. So, Marie, tell everyone, I, you know, I gave everyone an intro about all of your amazing accomplishments and the work you're doing, but give everyone also just a little bit of a summary about you and your work and your research interests. Yes, of course. So I'm doing a few things at the moment. <laughs> so I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, and I'm a clinician specializes in obesity and weight management. Um, so I teach master of science in obesity and weight management. I conduct qualitative research into the experience of sustainable weight loss. And I also work in clinic with private patients to try to help them achieve weight loss. It's amazing. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You and I, um, Marie and I are friends, and, and we've had this conversation numerous times about the complexity of obesity and weight loss in general. And I'm just so excited to have you on the podcast so we can discuss the important part of the behavioral health aspects, because I think oftentimes people think that there's nothing else that we can do with regards to diet and weight loss and uh, certain behavioral interventions. And everyone's kind of looking for a magic formula. And I, I appreciate how you really can speak to the complexity and the nuance that goes into behavioral interventions for weight management, weight loss, and things like that. So can you actually give us just a brief overview of the research you've done? Because you have been working on your PhD and you are almost completed and you have so many really impactful projects. And so I'd love for you to just start with a, a dive if you want to just dive right into your primary care-led weight management intervention. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, so for me, the main question really arose while working with patients in weight management for the past decade, both in the NHS and in private practice. If, if I really saw that people had great success, obviously with weight loss, but weight loss maintenance was a lot more challenging. And it's a very nuanced behavioral subject, much more than a nutrition subject or an exercise subject. And I really wanted to find out more about how patients can actually achieve long-term weight loss maintenance. And I was mainly interested in the patient perspective. So most studies are quantitative and they're three to 12 months. And that's often the case also because pharmaceutical companies need to deliver that kind of research at 12 months to actually get FDA approval for the medications. A lot of funding comes from that, but nobody, not a lot of people look beyond the one-year mark and not a lot of people speak to patients beyond the one-year mark either. But then you see all these trials coming out and you see, okay, you know, adherence rate was quite low and you had all these dropouts, but nobody ever, you know, cared to say, okay, what happened to them, especially after two years, you know, why are people leaving? And I really felt that there was a gap and we need to look into this from a clinical perspective as well. So essentially dropout rate would be uh, patients that started the, uh, the program, but didn't continue at varying times as well, which is also an important part to investigate because life events probably happen or something happened. 
And it's not really the failure of the patients. It's much more important for the researcher to understand how to work with the patient when this happens, as opposed to just having them drop out, which means they, you know, disengage from the program and cannot participate in it anymore. I think those, you know, root causes are very, very important to investigate because that is going to really improve treatment strategies. So yes, so dropout rates are very much about when people leave essentially. And in quantitative research, you don't really describe why or you don't investigate why as much. That's so important. That's such an important point because um, talking about the nuance of specifically like what circumstances lead, you know, for some people to be able to stick with a program versus others. I'm just so glad we're going to dive into the behavioral aspects because I think that oftentimes a lot of patients, even listening to this, you know, may feel that, you know, obesity in general and weight loss is so hard. It's so complex. And a lot of individuals, I think, because of the way, you know, society stigmatizes weight and the way it's been viewed as an only a personal responsibility issue, it's so much more complex than that. And I try to always tell our patients that, you know, do not blame yourself. This is a very complex multifactorial issue when it comes to obesity and weight loss. And it's not as simple as just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and lose weight. It is so much more complex than that. And we have to be really, you know, empathetic and open to patients being able to support them through finding what works for them with specific, whether it's specific dietary, um, as well as pharmacological, and as well as behavioral interventions that are super important. So with your study, um, yeah, feel free to deep dive into your study and get get into it. Great. So um, I started my PhD or my entire dissertation then um, with a systematic review, looking at 294 patients who tried to achieve sustainable weight loss. Sustainable weight loss is defined as at least 10% of weight intentional weight loss maintained over a year, which is also within itself debatable because some people don't really think that is long-term, but I guess you need to have a cutoff somewhere, right? Right. So, but with it, even 5% weight loss is already, already has benefits. So, you know, but 10% is usually the cutoff. So we wanted to see how, what patients encounter, what kind of experiences they had, what helped them adhere to their programs how the environment reacted and, you know, interacted with them during these journeys. So we really fleshed out a lot of themes and looked at what worked for people and what challenges people face, because we really want to inform clinicians and treatment protocols and also policymaking, really, because we just need to get a comprehensive understanding of the agile, fluid human experience and how we can help people within that deal, you know, with long-term weight loss and weight loss maintenance. I mean, you are in an obesogenic food environment, you have physiological drivers, environmental drivers, you have everyday drivers, you have life-changing pivotal moments. Life is very fluid and we there's just no one size fits all. And as we've previously discussed that, you know, 95% of diets fail, which is a number that is just taken out of thin air, essentially, from everything you and I have already discussed. There's not going to be a one size fit all, not even for you and me, for example. You know, what might work for us today might not work for us in a week, in a year, in five years. You just need to be open to multiple approaches within the environment and the requirements that you have at any given time. So that is really what our systematic review showed as well. It's more about an agile approach. It's also a lot more patient-centric, I would say. The support of healthcare practitioners is extremely vital and family members, but also having empathy, understanding the regain happens, but then finding a new strategy to self-monitor and continue on your process. If you hurt your knee, you're probably not going to be running marathons for a while, you know? <laughs> so then you need to get a different strategy and you might need to uh, change other levers, you know, 
might have to change your eating a little bit or might have to take up different sports or just any way to maintain an equilibrium or to go back to the equilibrium that works for you. So it's really just about being open-minded and also really understanding that, you know, 10% weight loss, even if you're still within the, you know, the obesity range, that is still really, really good as well. You know, we don't need, I mean, this, this utopian wish to be at a bikini body from a BMI of 40 is very unhealthy, very unachievable, and it's probably going to set you up for failure. So I think also managing your patients' expectations. So there's, it's a very nuanced approach. <laughs> I think that's so important that you mentioned that, that the approach has to be fluid. So we have to be able to meet our patients where they're at. And so I think that is so right that appreciating that a 10% weight loss is so phenomenal. It needs to be celebrated. We know from the research and the data that that's significant with regards to reducing uh, comorbidities and um, improving health and cardiovascular risk. So after your systematic review and you uh, started your incredible work here, and I would love for you to describe what you did. Thank you. Um, so, so I designed a study based on a direct trial, which was a trial that helped patients achieve diabetes remission or reversal, depending on the other terminology that you want to use, um, which was a very low calorie diet, meal replacement diet. So I did that part of my cohort. And I also did a droplet trial, a droplet trial inspired um, intervention, which was the same approach, but this is for just patients who have obesity or overweight. And that's eight to 12 weeks of meal replacement. And then you phase in food again, but you, you know, you teach them about lifestyle habits, work on exercise, you work on stress management, you obviously work on nutrition and give, you know, good gut guidelines within their own reality, which is also very important. You know, what is accessible, what is achievable, what is really important and what isn't, because there's a lot of noise in the nutrition world, as you know, very well. And I think people, it's, you know, it paralyzes. It really does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so for your study, so you, it was a baseline one year follow up and two year follow up study, correct? correct? So, exactly. So, at the pilot study beginning, I recruited 21 participants. Okay. Of, with really demographically diverse backgrounds. Um, so, male, female, all kinds of backgrounds, which was great. I was very fortunate to have such a diverse background in, in the participants. And um, so, the first study was very focused on understanding their lifetime experience with trying to achieve weight loss and weight loss maintenance. So it was a qualitative study. Uh, it was interview-based and it was semi-structured. So we would get, you know, a comprehensive data set, but I still explored areas within individuals because everyone's experience is so incredibly different. And, it, you know, it, it was very, very interesting. Most of them had tried every diet under the sky. Most of them blamed themselves hugely. Most of them want, want to be healthier, want to look better want to live longer for their families, you know, and uh, it was just as COVID around, came around, unfortunately, people were terrified to lose their lives, you know, things like that. And also just agility, being able to be agile, not being stigmatized anymore. So there were com a lot of common motivations and goals and experiences. You know, you had people who were on diet pills that they bought out of boots of cars and then lost sensation in their hands. I mean, it's, it's a very, very sad, you know, story probably, so to say, to read in a study. Because, yeah, people are just desperate to have support. Support, absolutely. And, you know, your cohort that you, as you mentioned, is quite diverse. And this is so important because representation in, in trials matters. So you had 12 female and eight male participants between the ages of 
34 and 72. And you said the BMI original um, for enrollment was over 25? Yes, exactly. It was uh, a minimal over 25. And your ethnicities included 10 white British European participants, four yeah. Asian British participants, and six African Caribbean British participants, which yeah. is great because you really had a, a diverse recruitment. Absolutely. And they also had, you know, different socioeconomic statuses, which was good. We had quite a few families in there. We actually had three families in there, which was also a very interesting factor. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, so that was very potent, actually, to, you know, to see how supportive they were and they had WhatsApp groups and it became this whole thing. And they all performed better, I would say. They were, um, that was definitely, like, uh, you know, a useful factor. Um, so yeah, for the baseline study, we just, we, we looked at the past and it became apparent that again, you know, irrespective of their social status or, you know, any social determinants, you know, completely different experiences. But, you know, they had commonalities and they're in the, I would say their motivations had a lot of commonalities. So that was an important factor to highlight. However, their histories were diverse, but they essentially all really tried to lose weight, didn't know what to do, were surprised by their weight gain, which was also an interesting theme that I hadn't really, I, I didn't anticipate as much to discover. Quite a few of them said they stepped on the scale and were shocked to be diagnosed with obesity at the doctors. And, you know, a lot of them said, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how this happened or how let this happen. There was also, also a lot of self-blame, which is quite sad to hear, right? Because people are just so confused and they just don't know what to do. And um, so, so, yeah, so those discoveries were very interesting, particularly when, you, when we then did the one and two-year follow-ups, which were the next two studies for this series. Um, so then, yeah, everyone went on the program. Everyone actually uh, adhered to the program for the first 12 weeks, which is fantastic. But then during this program, COVID-19 happened, whole country lockdown, as you know. And then it was extremely interesting to see because, you know, essentially half of the cohort said, well, this is, this is a great opportunity for me because I don't have to go to any social events. I can really focus on, you know, improving my entire life. And I can't wait to show my colleagues when I'm back in the office that I've lost all this weight and people won't judge me at the office for, you know, preparing my meals all the time or having these shakes if they were still in the shakes. So they thought it was a great opportunity and they just, you know, kept on succeeding. While others, as soon as COVID hit you know, and they were at home, they were like, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was too stressed. I was too tired. I just, and even it was equal again with people who had children at home some thought it was you know still absolutely fine others thought it absolutely was not fine so it was just it was such a mixed bag again but it was a very profound difference which also shows that people need such different support ne uh, support networks and support from healthcare practitioners okay so to bring everyone back to the trial design so you have these individuals that we mentioned and then they're um they all participated in this, you said eight, eight to 12 week full meal replacement intervention. That was, so option one was a full meal replacement intervention. What did that mean? So that meant you had um, 800 calories worth of uh, soups and shakes. And I also allowed them to eat less starchy vegetables. In between. And that really was a game changer, actually, I have to tell you, because in the beginning, the intervention I was leading, they did not want me to have that. And I actually spoke to all the patients and I knew that they were going to fall off. I just knew. And as soon as I said, you know what, you can have carrot sticks and you can have celery and, you know, you can dip it in salsa or <laughs> in yeah. homemade salsa, um, but things like that, it really, they were, and they were so happy to be able to eat, so to say, after doing just the shakes in the real beginning, it changed everything. That for option one is based on direct? Yes. Okay. And can you just kind of give everyone a brief overview who's not familiar what that, what direct was? The direct study actually came about because bariatric surgery was the only intervention that really uh, achieve, achieve, yes yeah. exactly help patients achieve remission and so swiftly 
So scientists were obviously wondering why that is possible and trying to look at the mechanisms. And obviously you go on a liver fat reducing diet prior to bariatric surgery and afterwards your stomach is restricted significantly. And there was something in this, you know, potential beta cell boosting in the pancreas if it's quite fatty and insulin sensitivity improving the liver if you also drain that of fat. So that is essentially what that does because this kind of fat is the first fat that disappears when you have a meal replacement diet that's on such low calories. And it seems to have this boosting effect for the insulin cells and it improves the sensitivity of the liver. So that actually helped people achieve remission. And so that was, so for direct, and that was what your optional one was based on. So it was full meal replacement and it was how yeah. many calories? 800 calories. And you also had about one to 200 calories in this approach of uh, less starch vegetables. Wow, that's challenging. It is challenging, but you know, people were quite motivated, especially the ones yeah. that were quite recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. It was okay. such a shock that it really encouraged them. And even, but also the ones that did option two, which consisted of like partial meal replacement and then one healthy calorie controlled meal, which was around 1,200 calories. But it, people were actually, the motivation, I would say, especially in the beginning is quite high. People are very motivated to improve their health. And it was at a medical center and we did, uh, we did a big presentation and invited patients with various comorbidities with the high, uh, elevated BMIs. And they then, from that progress, from this pilot presentation, illustrating what is possible, what isn't possible. Um, they then joined the program. Fascinating. Okay. So as you mentioned, so your first year of this study, the goal was to evaluate what their subjective experience was. So for your qualitative content analysis in, in year one, what did you find? Yes. Well, so I think one thing that is um, also talked about in research quite a lot is the readiness to change, you know? Yes. And that's so subjective. And there are also so many debates about this in the first place, even when I bring it up, because, you know, people are wondering, should we assess readiness to change? Is there, you know, a clear tool that could help us with that? How subjective is it, is it both from the practitioner and the patient, though? Because, you know, it is entirely subjective. And also, are we then keeping people out of studies that might actually succeed without knowing that they might succeed? So it's a very hard concept. But I did see in my study, we definitely saw that people who were really quite ready to change and just, you know, decided, okay, this, I'm just going to do this properly because this is my, this is my once in a lifetime, you know, opportunity to really live longer, play with my grandkids, see my children grow up, all these kind of things are, you know, uh, help us help my mobility is a big one as well, you know, so they want to age better. Um, so readiness to change was a huge concept because those patients were already really a lot, a lot more open to really reading all the material they were provided, picking up the phone when they were being called. So the readiness to change really determined the vast majority of successful weight loss maintainers and weight loss successors at the first year as well, half, I would say. And they were also very good at self-monitoring. And self-monitoring does not mean just stepping on the scale, as you know, but it's also, you know, seeing how your clothes fit or seeing how fit you are or seeing how you feel, feel when you look in the mirror. Whatever you personally like to measure is what is ideal for you. But a lot of them actually really did like weighing themselves once a week. They did feel it gave them some, some kind of control. And in this study, none of them actually felt that impacted their mental health at all. But I do know that the regainers then often stopped weighing themselves because they didn't want to tell me or the person who was calling them, you know, that they had regained weight. And also a lot of the regainers didn't engage as much. For example, they would miss a call and then they would write an email or a message. So, and then we had to, you know, encourage them and tell them we're not judging them. So disengagement, unfortunately, happened as well. But the successful ones had really strong self-monitoring strategies, they had strong support networks around them. They dedicated quite a bit of time to actually preparing food, reading food labels, 
you know, uh, signing up for a gym or going walking. It was very, it was very habitual and really great routines were established. It worked quite agile. So whatever worked at the time, again, with COVID as well. So most people went walking, for example. Okay, fascinating. So some of the comorbidities at the start of your uh, trial for the patients you had um, involved in this study before they were separated into option one, which was the one that modeled direct and option two, which was the one that was, you said droplet? Yes, exactly. So some of the comorbidities that you, uh, you saw, you had patients with comorbidities, there was about 20. Yes. Of, so 20 of the 21. So only one patient without. Okay. And no, no, sorry. No, 20, um, because 20 only participated in a one-year and two-year follow-up. One, We had one dropout. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and then this ranged from, you had everything from IBS, gallstones, chronic pancreatitis, GERD, fertility issues, yeah. uh, depression, sleep apnea, GI complications, um, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, arthritis, um, asthma, um, obviously elevated lipids, PCOS, depression, uh, so uh, prediabetes, diabetes. So it yeah. really uh, a wide variety of comorbidities. And then at the end of year one, yeah. patients with resolved comorbidities, 10. Yeah. And how was that separated out with regards to, was that the 10, those who had lost weight maintained it at year one or was it weight neutral? What did you say? It was the majority had, you know, lost at least 10% of their body weight. Absolutely. Wow. And yeah, so they had wow, resolved. So the majority 10- lost 10% of their body weight. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it, even in the second year, we still had half the cohort, which is good. Yeah. Even though some, you know, made, regained one kilogram or which is like, I think two and a half pounds, but they were able to kind of move within that. So they weren't as rigid in the second year. In the first year, they were all, it was very interesting. People were quite stressed about not wanting to regain. You know, so the first year was quite a lot more tense for them mentally. They were very, very focused, which was uh, quite impressive within itself. But it also brought a little bit of, you know, fear of regain with it. Um, yes, absolutely. But it was quite nice for the patients also to see the results. And even just quickly going back to meal replacement in general, before doing this intervention and before really engaging with direct as much, I probably wouldn't have recommended meal replacement as a nutritionist, you know? Right, right. But I do have to tell you the motivation that patients got from relatively quick weight loss in a very controlled manner with a multidisciplinary team. So we had you know, dietitians, psychologists, medical doctors, they were their GPs, so they're actual, you know, individual physicians as well. There was a lot of trust, of course. And um, yeah, people really, really found that motivating. You know, it's interesting. I totally agree. I actually, uh, something like a weight loss meal, like meal replacement, things like that are generally something, you know, I haven't recommended, but you can't look at the direct trial and not be incredibly impressed by the results from direct. And I totally agree with you. There's a difference between someone selling some snake oil, uh, weight loss shake on Instagram versus like direct trial or your trial where these, uh, essentially, um, meal replacements are in the setting of a multidisciplinary, very empathetic and very evidence-based intervention where you have physicians monitoring, you have registered dietitians, you have psychologists. So there's a lot that goes into that. And that's why I totally agree. I'm glad you brought up the, you know, hesitation that, that you initially had me too, but, you know, looking at direct, it really is phenomenal. And I wonder if some part of it is that, because I've had some patients that have used um, meal replacement that have also um, subjectively just found some success. And I wonder if some part of it is just being able to feel like they don't have to think 
extra and they don't have to essentially put even more effort into it because it can be really daunting to start a weight loss program. 100%. And also, I mean, you know, cooking skills and time are huge barriers in general for, you know, individuals traveling with weight. So it is actually, I completely agree with you that just the ease of not having to think about it and just knowing you're getting all the nutrients you need from these meal replacements, because they're obviously also, you know, higher quality ones, which is also exactly. within itself. Exactly. Um, yes, absolutely. It takes a lot of stress away. It really does. And it gives them an opportunity to just to focus on that and not have to think about hours. I mean, some of these meal plans that people give out, it's like, who has time for that? I don't have time for that. You know? And my patients really don't have time for that either. It's very daunting. daunting. So we also, the reintroduction is very phased. You drop one shaker soup every week. Okay. And then so, but within, so you always, and you replace it with a meal. So you really are able to start engaging with cooking in a very gradual way. And you're just with choosing meals. So you can, and within that, we can also see how did you go last week? What did you find most challenging? How can we help you with that? And did you notice a difference in success in the two arms, whether they were in the direct inspired arm versus the droplet inspired arm? Actually, surprisingly, not really. Not really. So what was the behavioral intervention from your standpoint? How often was the were you guys in touch with the uh, patients and their families? And like, what kind of behavioral interventions went into it? You know, the interesting thing is we actually also spoke to some family members, by the way. We Amazing. talked to everyone individually and everyone uh, was assigned their own registered nutritionist. That was very important. And usually we did, you know, four weeks phone and then went to text. But a lot of patients, we always asked them, we said, what kind of support would you like? And that also was a lot more agile. And that was also actually agile until the end of year two. So it was, that's what I mean. It was just a very agile approach. They all had an app on which to track everything they were uh, taking in. And they were able to directly message confidentially their nutritionist at all times. Wow. Yeah. Which was really, really great. So obviously, you know, the response in the middle of the night, they weren't responding. But generally, and just having that, you know, you might have also read that in some interviews, uh, like the responses were, you know, just knowing that you're there. And having this confidential relationship with your one-on-one nutritionist, I think that really enhanced the outcome, even if they didn't utilize it, you know? So quite a few, um, so it was, again, a very mixed bag. Some needed calls, wanted calls. Uh, quite a few patients were quite lonely. So for them, it was even much more about a therapeutic relationship than, you know, necessarily the nutritionist relationship. So you really needed lifestyle coaches, so to say. Um, yeah, so it was it was based on that. And then once we did uh, much more of the lifestyle, we would do calls again or when we did a phasing off we called every week again just to see how they're going with that so it was very agile and it was more about like in the beginning i feel like the first four weeks patients needed a lot of support you know because it was the meal replacement shock and and people would write in, in between asking questions and all these kind of things which is absolutely fine and then again with the phasing off uh, you had phone again and it, whenever you wanted phone so it was very very mixed it was mixed that's really interesting Can you explain then the, so you had year one of your trial and then you actually extended it out to year two? Yes, exactly. And year two was, um, was you were just getting either a call or a message from a nutritionist. And at the end of year one, we said, okay, what kind of support would you like going forward? And it was very, very interesting. And a lot of the successful ones were happy to have a bit less support. So they still, they were like, and you know, one message a month was totally sufficient for them. But others, you know, even something like, Way, way less of the uh, successful ones, but uh, two or three wanted calls every week. Others wanted to call every month. So it was a very mixed bag. So uh, let's go through your results then. Take us through. <laughs> All right. So we developed a framework that you can all look up if you would like. 
<laughs> so um, essentially, well, I, I briefly discussed this, but also at the two-year mark, again, it was a mixed bag with COVID-19 and how much impact that everyone's experience in terms of trying to achieve weight loss and weight Absolutely. loss maintenance. But it was significantly less than in the first year. And I think that is likely due to, you know, because there was less uncertainty, everything had opened up a bit more, even though we had some lockdowns, but it was definitely not seen as, as much of a factor. And I think it's, we had the vaccine, you know, so all these it, people weren't as stressed by that. So it was, it was, we had much more of a, you know, non-issue, I would say for the average individual participating on both sides, really. Um, yeah, so uh, self-monitoring, again, hugely important, just finding a technique that works for you. And very much the second year was all for successful candidates, uh, patients, sorry. <laughs> it was much more about this really established routine. So it was people felt a lot more confident in being able to keep the weight off themselves. So I think that really the second year was very, very important. And everyone said that. They said, you know, if you would, if I wouldn't have had your support in the second year, I don't think I would have made it. So the first year was much more anxiety filled, fear filled, but the second year was really like a holistic overall lifestyle change. It was quite solidified. They'd gone through a lot of changes in the first year, including COVID-19. And then we're able to see that how to manage challenges as well, because we're going to have life events, never going to change, right? We're going to change jobs. We're going to have, you know, deaths in our families, unfortunately, and changes in family circumstances, social circumstances. There's so many things that can happen. So it was really having this long-term outlook. And being quite realistic about what is achievable for them. Because also, to mention briefly, everyone, you know, when they first start in any weight loss intervention I've ever been a part of, they want to work out seven days a week for an hour and <laughs> barely eat anything. And <laughs> you, have to, you have to become a lot more realistic and not aim for, again, the bikini body, but just being happy about the amount of weight loss you can achieve in a sustainable manner. Yeah, that, you, that, won't, that won't torture you. That won't be yes. feel miserable and feel, yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, so clear structure and routine and just really clearly uh, determined days and schedules, you know, planning ahead for the weekend, how you're going to manage all these, you know, daunting events or if you have a bigger dinner, maybe have a bit of a lighter breakfast the next day, but really, and also consistently, you know, really planning in your mind, not necessarily writing it down, but having an understanding of what you intend to eat, you know, also going shopping, thinking about your week ahead. So whatever works for each individual or thinking about, you know, looking at labels, if you're eating out a lot to really see what is actually in the food. So it was, I would say there was a lot, uh, quite a bit of effort involved, which is understandable, but people were very happy to do it because they were so happy about the results because they felt the results were very, very life-changing. So wow. in this, yeah. So in this context, it was, uh, I would, and I think that is consistent with the research anyway, right? So you saw each patient involved in the trial uh, did lose weight. Yes. Correct. And, and so at the end of year two, you actually saw, so not only did we see a reduction in um, comorbidities, so some of those comorbidities we had mentioned before, such as you know, patients had seen resolution of various comorbidities, whether it was high blood pressure or uh, high cholesterol or diabetes, but Additionally, you also saw patients using less medication at the end of year two, um, which is really incredible. And so we see that with weight loss interventions often. But what's fascinating is that you collected the subjective experience for these individuals. So even though despite they've had these 
quantitative improvements in their health, the qualitative improvements, I think, are, are super important. And those are the ones that you really, in your framework, really discuss. So did you find a difference with regards to the family dynamic for the families that were involved? Were the healthy lifestyle habits more easily stuck with if the whole family was involved? 100%. And they also all uniformly said that that they really, and they also kept each other accountable, you know, when they went out or someone wanted to go off track. It was really, it was, they had WhatsApp groups, each family. And also again, various, uh, you know, socio-demographic differences with one family that was very deprived, another family that was, you know, very well educated and not deprived. Um, so, and they did both did really, really well. So I do think there's a huge element about community. They would weigh themselves. They would talk about how much weight they'd lost or what they're struggling with, exchanging recipes. So it was really, really beneficial. People really struggled with external, uh, you know, peers that were unsupportive, which was, you know, something, I guess, if you think about it, it's not that surprising, but it's just not something you would usually think that people would be happy for you to improve your health by weight loss if it's done in a sustainable way. But people are quite, uh, friends and family members were quite threatened by the weight loss. Exactly, because it does change the daily habits of this individual. And also self-confidence fluctuated so much. That was also a very interesting finding in the study, actually, because with weight loss, self-confidence went you know, through the roof. While with regain and fluctuations, people were extremely hard on themselves. So it's a very volatile relationship there. But yeah, so peers uh, found that really challenging to you know, accept this new person, to not have the same attention as their partner. I, th- I assume they were also worried about what this might you know, mean for them within their relationships, within their context. So that people found that very challenging. And you also, interest, interestingly, uh, two of the couples, uh, so one within that family of four and one uh, the other couple, one of the partners lost more in each couple, even though they both got more than 10% weight loss. And they expressed jealousy. Wow. Yes, of their partner, because they would say, you know, they're getting so much more attention, even though I lost so much weight too. And the other one also said, in the second year, everyone just took my weight loss for granted. <laughs> they really enjoyed the attention it also brought. So that was very, very interesting. It was very, very important to people for to have others recognize their weight loss. So it's a very complex situation. Well, some of them didn't care at all about what other people thought. So it's again so nuanced, so individual, and it's. You, I just it would be incredibly hard to find a one size fits all uh, approach for the entire population. <laughs> That's such an interesting qualitative finding that you mentioned. That you know, some people felt from their peers and support, uh, social support, they felt encouraged. Others felt, as you mentioned, hindrance, or they felt that there was some negative feedback for losing weight. And I think someone, anyone listening, I'm sure I, I know my patients have, have expressed this as well. It's nice to see this document in the research because I've had patients express similarly to me that sometimes when a patient is losing weight for um, a health-related reason that they are trying to lose weight to improve their blood pressure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or their type 2 diabetes. Sometimes once they are losing the weight, I have had patients mention that they have certain family members or certain friends or coworkers give them a hard time about their new eating habits and kind of give them a hard time about about how they're preparing their own food or give them a hard time about how they don't want to go out to dinner or they don't want to eat their um, aunt's favorite pasta and things like that. And that is actually a really under-discussed, I think, uh, barrier in in weight loss. So it's interesting that you saw that in your research as well, because I do think I've had 
seen patients experience that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's even seen as a, as a threat, you know, because if you think about it, if hypothetically you have a family setting of, let's say, two children, three children and two parents, and one of the parents decides they want to really turn their life around, reverse their you know, health complications, et cetera. If they then really dedicate themselves to this, so they might be going going out to exercise more, they might be eating different food, buying different food, spending time preparing different food. It can really be seen as a very selfish act, even though it's not because you're obviously if you're going to be healthier, you're going to be able to participate better and in, in longer in family you know, occasions and things like that. But it is seen as a selfish act. And that was also frequently expressed that, you know, people were wondering why it suddenly become so selfish. Yeah, so wow. it's very interesting. And then also um, drinking was a huge one like, because that is just a, that was just such a normal part of social engagements. People don't want to drink around people that aren't drinking in the same way anymore. You know, they found that daunting or unpleasant. So you really, some of them also really needed to find new peer groups nearly because of wow. this. Wow. Yeah. That's because so it's just a very different life. Yeah. So do you have any tips for the way for people to navigate that complex dynamic? So I think I would probably try to look around to see, you know, who's enjoying similar things to you in the UK. We have park run or things like that, where you can just find groups that enjoy, you know, the, the same things you do. Go cycling with a group of cyclists that might be local that you can maybe find on Facebook or through your community centers, things like that. I, I would recommend, you know, Either, well, first of all, expressing what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it and how it's benefiting you. And if people around you are discouraging, trying to find people who help you stay encouraged. Super important. And I think for anyone listening, you know, it's, uh, I think it's important to know too, because as much as, you know, we say, listen, I'm not going to ask every single patient, do you want my advice about weight loss? If they are not ready to lose weight, if that is not an interest or a health goal of theirs, we can't push it on on them. And that's why I agree with you. Readiness to change is so important. So the initial 12-week direct or droplet intervention kind of gives them a kickstart. And then you get them into these sustainable habits for the rest of the year and then for a two-year trial. So you found that the majority of participants describe positive benefits associated with weight loss, including improved health, self-perception, enhanced feelings of positivity and confidence. You said many also described having a better relationship with food and peers or frequently perceived as supportive and encouraging. Um, notably, regainers, so people who had regained weight during the trial, felt the strongest fluctuations in the following categories. So people who had regained weight felt more fluctuation in improved health and self-perception. Yes. Yep. Can you can you kind of elaborate on that? So, um, especially the self perception part is, uh, I think I, was, I previously alluded to this. Yeah. Were so hard on themselves. Oh. If they regain the way, it's very very sad. People cry, you know, and it's very interesting because people don't blame the intervention, and that's a, a pretty common thing. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's and nobody blamed the intervention at all, and uh, that's consistent with the research, which is very interesting. So people. So when people would lose weight, it's just the confidence and the positivity and the motivation through the roof, generally, which is also very much related to how they looked in the mirror, what kind of clothes they could wear and how much weight they lost, which is, you know, a bit more extrinsic in nature. But people were very motivated by that. That is just uh, how this group was. But yes, yeah, as soon as they, you know, regained weight, people were the that very derogatory language towards themselves, called themselves failures disappointments uh, said they were disgusted with themselves so it was extremely negative unfortunately which was really really sad no matter how much you know we were saying of course not absolutely weight loss is hard and you're doing such a great job and and they were every single one of them because they were so educated for so long and they learned so much like you rightly uh, just pointed out they they all had some kind of health improvement 
oh, you know, walked a bit more, moved a bit more, were a bit more mindful of what they were eating. You know, so everyone had some kind of self-improvement, again, quite diverse, but the quality of life improved for every single one in some category. Absolutely. I think it's so important to, for anyone listening that um, has patients that you manage with trying to help them with obesity and weight loss, or anyone listening that has struggled with it themselves is to, uh, is that your, your data collecting this subjective experience of the patient and, and hearing that, that they are so hard on themselves. They're not blaming the intervention, even though they should be blaming the intervention and, <laughs> and not themselves. You know what I mean? And it breaks my heart. And so I think that that's something as, uh, physicians, healthcare providers, registered dietitians, um, and even just someone who's supporting someone on a weight loss or health journey is to be really cognizant of that self-blame and to provide a lot of support and reassurance and encouragement, no matter what, that any step in the health journey is, is a positive foot forward and that we just have to keep encouraging that. I think it's really important because that also is something I think under-discussed is how hard our patients are on themselves extremely and how high their aims are too. And then this entirely unachievable. So also really managing expectations from the beginning, you know, because then it's, it's a domino effect, essentially. They plan on working out seven days a week for an hour and then they're hurting and exhausted and, you know, hating their lives, essentially. They're going to fall off track. And then it's that's going to be, have a really serious impact on their self-confidence and on and on. And they never blame, like you said, the intervention. And they've all tried every diet under the sky. And they've always thought it was them who failed, not the ketogenic diet or the juice diet, or, you know, they, it's, they've really, it's all, you know, directed towards themselves, which is very interesting and very unfortunate. So I'm really glad podcasts like yours are talking to people like us because we can really say it's not your fault. It's the it's intervention. Not, it's fault. not. It's exactly yeah. so true. And it's that we need to find it's, it's not your fault. It's, it's the, it's never the patient's fault. We need to find the right combination of interventions that work for them. And that's why I love that you have this fluid approach, knowing that there is no one size fits all. And I would even say it's not even, it's not always the right time to lose weight, meaning yeah. just because a patient may have obesity with comorbidities that are related to excess adiposity um, does not mean that at that moment that it is the right time for them to lose weight. There could be various other things going on in their life that that cannot be prioritized at that moment. And that is something that we have to respect and understand, like, you know, which is such a huge part of your, your qualitative data is finding the different barriers to uh, losing weight and the different interventions that we can help support people in because at each stage in the life, there could be, you know, a different need. So you did find that many participants described feeling happier um, yes. and felt the impact was life-changing, improvement in confidence. Yep. You mentioned participants described generally feeling better, um, particularly due to achieving weight loss maintenance. So it is good to see that uh, patients, once they were successful in the trial, that they, they could kind of relax on being hard on themselves as well. Yeah. And trusted, trusted themselves as well, much more in the second, by the end of the second year, which yeah, also shows that you do need longer duration. And if you've kept your weight off uh, for two, uh, for two years, and then after that, your chances of keeping it off increase significantly as wow. well. So it's, it is a quite important cutoff and also a very hard approach to scale at population level. Mm -hmm. And our, the rates are so high, unfortunately, that a lot of people would need this kind of support, but it also really seems to be the approach that, that will work. And, you know, if we take, you know, how much this is costing our society anyway and how, how much pain people are in and how much help people want and need, 
I think the only way you, you can really achieve anything is an individualized, scalable approach. So important. And I think that the common theme we're seeing here is that there is no one size fits all. I, I love I love that you were able to do this qualitative um, research because it, it just really shows how each individual has different needs. And I, I can't think of any study. I mean, I'm you would know better than me, but I can't think of any study that has done a similar approach that's fluid as yours. And so you have you found that external support and encouragement from healthcare providers and peers was consistently mentioned as a key factor to help facilitate long-term success. So health care provider encor- encouragement and support. So um, participants described finding continuous support encouraging um, and words of encouragement enhanced adherence. So what can be your advice to healthcare providers who are listening? What what was also very interesting to discover is that people often don't really have people in their lives that say nice things to them. I know this may be a very basic statement, but a lot of them actually say, you know, you're so kind and you know, people don't on a daily basis, most people don't really have anyone who's, you know, in their corner or champions them and says, you know, well done, or you're down, you can do this. Let's try it again. And let's see, let's see how we can adjust things. So that it works for you. Just this kind of compassion and support that's non-judgmental was mentioned all the time. Wow. And also because people said that they had worked with other dietitians and other uh, programs and they would just, for they would, they would go to, you know, Slimming World or those bigger interventions where you're waiting for the whole group. And then you felt very shamed if you didn't lose oh, the weight, for example. Horrible. Exactly. And then also some dietitians, you know, they would scold them for not losing more weight or horrible. gaining weight, but it, it actually happened to most of them, the oh, medical doctors. There's, there was a lot of shaming and a lot of discouragement. And really just knowing that you're going to call and you're not going to, you're going to get a call and you're not going to hear, oh, why did you do that? Or not just hearing, that's okay. You know, like people actually even quoted me back saying, it was so nice to hear you just say, that's okay. You know, your life is challenging at the moment. Even even, during COVID, I kept on telling everyone, weight maintenance is already an amazing achievement now in these crazy times, you know? So those kind of aspects, or if they worked out, but maybe regained a pound or two, it was like, okay, well, it's great. You worked out. Let's highlight what, you know, you did so very well and let's see how we can, Work on the other aspects again going forward the next week. How can we make it work for you next week? What were your challenges? How can we overcome them? There's always a way. I love this. I love the idea of making the approach with patients a team approach. I always say it's a marathon. It is not a sprint. And we're looking over the long term. And this is the same thing goes with smoking cessation for patients as well. You know, um, I think that anytime a patient is facing a lifestyle change that's challenging, that giving them that support and encouragement, a no judgment support and encouragement, meeting them where they're at is so important. And you found that also peer feedback and motivation was incredibly obviously important. We touched on this before, how how much of a barrier it can be for those that experienced some negative feedback, but for positive peer feedback and motivation, this was this enhanced motivation for many of the patients. Hugely. And also it was very sweet to see that partners would actually start wanting to eat what, you know, the ones on the program were eating and children would eat healthier. And people were actually quite a few people were very curious. Your friends were curious, you know, so those were the positive aspects saying, well, you look amazing. How did you do it? And they would teach them about nutrition. And they would, one of them is, she's wonderful. She's a, a head nurse and she, her whole department is so impressed with her weight loss. And she's taking them oh. all on walks now on charity walks. And she's just, she, uh, she is one that uh, really, and also self-identify that she really thrives on external feedback. And she absolutely loves it that people don't recognize her because she's lost so much weight. And she, yeah, she's championing, championing this new lifestyle for everyone in her whole hospitals. <laughs> it's very sweet. And yeah, they get a lot of joy out of that. 
actually, which is very, very Yeah, nice. that's amazing. When you talk about individual challenges and obstacles that your participants felt with regards to stress, anxiety, coping mechanisms, and mindset, you you said participants often found changing work environments to be very stressful. This makes a lot of sense. Changing a, a work environment can be incredibly stressful and adding um, different dietary changes to that can be stressful as well. So what did, what did your subjectively hear from your participants with that? First of all, you know, your journey to work, how are you getting to work? Did you used to bike and now you can't anymore? You have to take public transport or your car. So you're already a lot more sedentary, obviously. Then also what kind of uh, food can you access? How much time do you have? What are your working hours? Are you working shift work? I mean, there's so many aspects that change everything. And it's really about helping patients create meals that they can actually then, you know, maybe just put in the microwave, batch cook on a Sunday, you know, put them in the freezer, take them with you or do a meal delivery service if you can afford it. There are a lot of options and you just need to work with the change. Doing a home workout on the weekends, I, I, I highly recommend doing home workouts. You know, and YouTube is full of home workouts. If that's the only thing you, you can access financially or in terms of your time, do home workouts. Absolutely. So much is available for free. Uh, things like that, just uh, and managing your schedule, really thinking about when do I have time? Instead of just saying, I just don't have time, full stop. Often you do have time somewhere. Perfect example of why a blanket one size fits all approach does not work. And that's because what you just described and lack of time and structure. So this one is a huge one. So you notice a lack of time due to changing commitments was a frequently faced challenge. And I hear this all of the time. So this impacted previously established exercise routines. Um, participants who often felt that a lack of structure took them off course, which decreased adherence. So tell us more about that. Well, it was, again, a change in jobs or, you know, childcare was another one that changed a lot of people exactly because of COVID. So that it's a huge issue. If you have to start picking up your children, you know, you have to work late at night. Yes. <laughs> because things like that. If you did normal schedule change or if you had your kids at home for months. Absolutely. You them. I mean, the last thing you have energy or time for is to, you know, roll out your yoga mat and do an hour of yoga, for example. It's just not, it's not realistic. And also, I do think energy is underemphasized in the research as well, because, you know, time, yes, we all have time. But if you're a mother of two or three and you're working full time in a, in a really physically or mentally exhausting job, you don't really want to come home and work up for an hour. You Absolutely. know, people, you have a lot of, you know, personal trainers, if I may say, or health coaches saying we all have the same 24 hours in a day. No, we do not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's categorically ridiculous, you know, to say that a Absolutely. single, twenty-two-year-old male who works in a gym has the same opportunities to be fit and healthy as a mother, you know, that works in, in a really tiring job with multiple kids. Right? Just, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> that is the best myth to bust. Is the idea Seriously. that those Instagram memes about how everyone has the same twenty-four hours in a day, and so that's like a, a shaming technique to get people yes. to work out or eat X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Clearly, like you just mentioned, a 22-year-old, you know, guy who can go to the gym, who's single and, and working, has an entirely different schedule than, like you mentioned, like a busy, full-time working mom, three kids, multiple activities, pandemic, all these things going on. I, the the entire the 24 hours in a day, like you mentioned, are, are not the same. And like you said, energy level too. That's incredibly important. So what what did you find worked for that? category of, of people who felt that their time was a stress factor? Well, I think also prioritization, really talking okay. about, for example, I always said to them, I would, I really need you to get your seven to eight hours of sleep in. And if you're going to decide between getting up extremely early 
and working out or going to bed extremely late, please choose your sleep, for example. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Those kind of things. So it's really, and again, having a sounding board like us tell you what is really the most important thing, because obviously your hunger is going to increase if you don't sleep enough. Concentration is going to suffer. You're going to have even less energy. So it's just going to be a vicious cycle. So really prioritization and again, individualization. So maybe Saturday and Sunday are the ideal days for you to do some kind of workout. That is okay. Two days a week and then maybe walk a bit more during the week. Get your sleep in. Get your you know, sleep. don't increase your stress. Do something for yourself. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself a chance to switch off when your kids go to bed. You don't need to be running to the gym and going completely crazy and exhausting yourself into the ground. So those kind of things are just not sustainable, not realistic, and not conducive. Not conducive. I love that you mentioned small changes and and people celebrating. I always emphasize this people celebrating the small changes they make and the small wins. I think that's so important. You know, you don't have to go from not working out to having a personal trainer, working out seven days a week for an hour, doing an hour of strength, an hour of hit, an hour of cardio. You can literally just make small changes that are manageable, more sustainable. And that is incredible and so important. And I think we don't emphasize that that enough. There's such a, of course, you know, social media, there's such a dichotomy and there's such everything's so binary. It's always, you know, either the extreme workout or the extreme diet or, you know, and it's, it's it, but it's just, it's really important to that. Like you mentioned, meeting them where they're at and trying to figure out the individualization of what works for them. And so you also discuss food environment. So this is super important access to takeaway food increased significantly during and after lockdowns, which led to increased consumption. So you also found that some tried to avoid the food environment strategically to decrease uh, temptation. So what were the biggest takeaways from what you learned from your patients and the food environment? Uh, Pre-planning, honestly, just really. And uh, and yet also uh, this often send us menus and they would actually ask, you know, what they should order, what we recommend or how they should manage these nights out. And we were much, we were quite accommodating as well again so for example of course you should have a slice of cake and like a full dinner for your birthday not even a question also have a glass of prosecco or whatever you feel like drinking just get back on track afterwards and stay on track beforehand you know it's not going to make a big difference we said that to everyone which everyone was very surprised about again that and they were also surprised to learn it doesn't make a big difference that one meal one meal you know exactly but these kind of things people are really you know they don't know what to do they don't know where to look they don't they think they're going to eat a slice of cake and you know the carbs are going to make them explode essentially which just does not happen whatsoever as you know very well um and also yeah honestly um Shop, you're shopping, planning ahead, ordering the right food into your house, not having unhealthy temptations around the house if possible. You know, also improving the nutrition of your children. That was a big one as well. So quite a few of them, but the majority of the cohort had children. And also they would say, you know, but my children like to eat, you know, these chocolates or crisps. And I was like, well, you know, let's replace that with, you know, maybe brown rice cakes or things like that. And if that's the only thing in the house, the kids are also going to eat that. I have kids myself that they're not going to starve. They get used to it, you know. <laughs> so, And as you mentioned, super important that you always emphasize, and I do too, is that no one meal and no one food in one dose is going to cause disease. You know, it's overall dietary pattern that matters. So it's super important for everyone to just not be hard on themselves because it is, is not going to derail all of their progress and that it's, it's totally okay to enjoy foods you love and to um, indulge in foods you love and just have foods yeah. you love as a part of your life. But feeling guilty about it is certainly not going to, um, by any means, 
make it any easier. And I think that we just are, we live in a society where the shame and the guilting over food choices is just too extreme. But I like the idea that you mentioned here that family support, peer support, and also pre-planning and structure, these are things that can help create a food environment that that is more suitable for weight loss and maintenance. Absolutely. And again, with there are always other food options. You don't have to eat bananas if you don't like bananas. You know? right. I always say this to my patients, you don't have to eat anything you don't enjoy. Let's find something on the, I mean, there's so many vegetables, there's so many fruits, there's so many options for grains. And, you know, so we can, we can just go through them and figure out what you like and pick that. You know, I think that is also, again, the one size fits all just does not work. <laughs> Absolutely. So what would you say so this has been incredibly informative. This has been such an amazing review. Your work is so important. So what is your takeaway for um, individuals who are struggling to lose weight, who have tried various different diets online, different programs? What's the takeaway that you've recognized from your research that they could take away and that could help them find a more sustainable program? Well, the first takeaway is certainly that you have just not found the right approach for you. It's not that you failed any of the approaches. I love that. So a hundred percent. So you found would, the right, you haven't found the right approach for you. For you. It's not yeah. that you have failed at those approaches. Beautiful. Exactly. It is yeah. not your fault. hundred percent not. And then really speak to someone who actually has an educational background in this field. So really someone who just hasn't studied either obesity, weight management, nutrition, dietetics, anything, or, you know, I mean, you're a bit of a unicorn because you're such a well-educated medical doctor in this field as well. I would definitely send anyone to you as well. Um, But someone who actually has an education in this field, a university education, please, ideally, will really give you sound advice because they're not going to put your expectations to a really high level from the get-go. They're not going to see what actually works for you individually, what is sustainable, you know, what is even healthy, what's realistic, what's good for your mental health, what's, what's good for your physical health. So really speak to a professional, you know, seek out support so you can really understand what really matters, what the important, important non-negotiable levels are and the ones that are very negotiable. There, you, You'll probably be surprised at how much is negotiable. So you can really, you know, choose and find ways that work for you individually. And some of these patients even put themselves on a low-carb diet, which is not my approach. But it's working for them. So, you know, if that works for you and you're eating healthily, be my guest, you know, those uh, non-judgmental approach, your healthcare, exactly. Your healthcare practitioners should really want to know what works for you as an individual. If calorie counting makes you anxious, do something else. There's, there's so many ways to achieve sustainable weight loss to a degree that is right for you and in a way that is sustainable for you. So that is really what you want to look for. That is so beautiful. And that is so well said. And I think the biggest takeaway, my biggest takeaway from your research and the important work you do is uh, for anyone listening, it's a patient um, that is struggling with this. Don't blame yourself because as, as Marie so eloquently said, it's the intervention that failed. It's not you. You did not fail the intervention. The intervention failed you because it wasn't the right one for you. So it doesn't mean that you have no chance to, you know, lose weight and improve your your health if that's your goal. It's just like Marie mentioned, finding the right intervention that works for you at this time in your life, if it's the right time in your life. Knowing that, 
we have different seasons in life and different things we go through and it may not be the right time. And I think the other really important takeaway from your research is also having a multidisciplinary support can be really important. So having um, the support of a registered dietitian, um, a physician who, as you mentioned, are knowledgeable about this. And I always, this is a theme in all of my podcasts, but I, I think it really does apply, especially here too, is that if you are say seeing a registered dietitian or a qualified health professional who you don't feel like is 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 giving you the support you need or is giving you the exact guidance you need or isn't isn't making a more fluid change in their approach i'd recommend finding a new one getting a second opinion a third opinion finding 100% right do you agree that we that people should be very open to finding a different provider absolutely and this person needs to be empathetic and the person needs to make you feel good because you want to be honest to your healthcare practitioner. You really do. No matter if it is a medical doctor, a dietitian, nutritionist, you know, you want to be able to be honest and open and vulnerable with them because it's a really vulnerable process as well. Because it's not linear. You're going to, you know, have slip ups. You're going to feel bad about yourself. You're going to judge yourself. Do you want someone who understands you that you can be open to, honest to, and talk these feelings through with? It's very important. So definitely, absolutely. If someone does not make you feel good, change them immediately. I couldn't agree more. One more thing I would like to add is actually to be in a multidisciplinary team and to also know that behavioral uh, support is, and behavioral interventions are extremely important, but there are also other aspects that can accompany behavioral interventions. And there's absolutely no shame in utilizing pharmacotherapy or bariatric surgery, wherever you're at. I think a com combined approach can be incredibly powerful and empowering even for patients. So I think having no shame around that either, it's not one or the other. Again, no one size fits all. And there are a lot of really great interventions that can work together. So I would also encourage patients to be very open to that. Absolutely. I, I think that taking away the idea that obesity uh, is the patient's fault, because it's just, we know as people who, and you're a researcher in this field, I'm someone who treats patients in this field, we know that it is so complex. Obesity is so complex. There's genetic factors, environmental factors. There are so many factors that we haven't even discovered yet. And there are so many factors at play that, you know, having our patient understand that just because they're struggling, it does not mean that it's their fault. It means that there needs to be a different supportive team to help them find what works for them. And like you mentioned, it could be uh, pharmacotherapy. Now we have GLP-1 receptor agonists, which are phenomenal. It could be bariatric Absolutely. surgery. It could be uh, various different types of diets with different kinds of behavioral interventions. But regardless, the shame has to go away because uh, I think too much of it is our patients feel ashamed. They feel, I, I sometimes have patients say to me when they're getting started on WeGovi, you know, like a GLP one, they feel like, well, I failed. And I said, you did not fail. You have not failed. This is not about you failing. You are actually a success by finding a healthcare provider that's going to help you team up with you to find the approach that works for you. It is not a failure. Absolutely. And we don't have the stigma with medication, for example, with type 2 diabetes. Nobody would say you're an insulin, you're a failure, it's, you know, or nobody would be on, be put on statins and feel like, like it's absolutely outrageous that we're even considering that to be a failure. Yeah. And we need to, as healthcare providers, I think really approach and, and reiterate with our patients that we have empathy and compassion for them and that we need to really support them and having empathy and compassion for themselves. Um, and so I think that the 
last big takeaway I took from your trial also was that um, for healthcare providers was that support. So the support really was predictive of, of success and that we need to be giving positive feedback and we need to be actively engaging in that for our patients and look at it as like a long-term uh, team approach rather than a short-term, you know, quick fix. So thank yes. you so much, Marie, for your incredible research and work you've contributed in this space and for educating all of our listeners and let everyone know where can they find you on social media? I'm actually not very active on social media, as you know, <laughs> just with my name, Marie Spreckley, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> so maybe this will inspire Marie to, to, to share some info on there, but you can find Marie's research papers and um, keep an eye uh, for when, when will this one be published? Do you think within the next, it depends on the peer review process. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. so three to six months at the latest, hopefully. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I cannot wait. Well, we'll make sure we, uh, we make sure we put your paper everywhere when yes, it's out perfect. because this work you've done has been so, uh, changing. And thank you for, for performing one of the first studies I've seen in a while that gives a voice to patients. Yes. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to, that I got a nice cohort of such diverse patients. They were also so kind to support me, my research in return, you know, for the support essentially. So it was, yeah, thank you very much. I'm, I re I'm really grateful for physicians like you who take an interest in this. You know, it's true. <laughs> oh. It is very true. Team patient-centered approach is everything. Thanks guys. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunk next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.